Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Davina, and thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Steve Jenowick, and if you're not familiar with Steve, Steve is a Grammy-nominated recording engineer who has been in the industry for over 30 years. He has been a staff engineer at Capitol Studios, where he got to work with a ton of amazing big artists, people like Elton John, Bastille, Trisha Yearwood. He also was an assistant engineer for Al Schmidt for many years, and Al is a famous engineer in his own right, and together they worked on projects with Diana Krall, Gladys Knight, Neil Young, Paul McCartney, Quincy Jones, and a whole bunch of other people as well. So Steve really has worked with a lot of major artists. And in his time working at Capitol, he's seen a lot of really cool projects and a lot of different styles of projects as well. And one really cool project that he was really on the ground floor with was the Dolby Atmos system. And he was pretty much one of the first, if not the first mixing engineer to mix in Dolby Atmos. So In our conversation today, we definitely talk all about his history, working at Capitol and some of the cool stuff that they did there, working with Al Schmidt. And we also talk about the challenge of learning a new technology like Dolby Atmos and some of the projects he's done with it, where he's had to like literally remix records and recreate records that have been famous for many years and turn those into Dolby Atmos mixes. So I think it's a really fun conversation. He shares a lot of great stories and I know you're really going to enjoy it. So let's just jump right into it. Steve Jenwick, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. No problem. For people who might not know you or aren't familiar with your background and how you got into music and into engineering and all the cool stuff you're working on these days, can you give us that story? I'll give you the quick story because I've said it a million times. But uh, I was the world's worst guitar player. Um, you know, never really, never really learned how to play, but sort of. But all my friends, my friends were in bands and stuff like that. And and, you know, through high school, and I loved hanging out with them. I was always a music fan, um, but I was more of an athlete growing up, playing soccer, baseball, that kind of stuff. So didn't really have time for that music stuff. Um, but again, my friends were in bands and stuff, and I liked I liked being around the bands, and I liked going to shows and doing all that kind of stuff. And, and as I realized that, you know, my soccer career was not going to work out as everybody else got bigger and stronger and faster than me, and I wasn't getting bigger and stronger and faster. Um, you know, I thought I am going to have to get a, a job here. So, you know, and I, and I like music. So I was like, well, I got to do something in music, something creative, you know, and I would go to shows with, you know, helping my friends and stuff. And there was the sound guy there. And I was like, well, that looks interesting. I can probably do that. He's just standing there, you know, they make it look so easy, right? <laughs> huh? Yeah, it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I kind of just started, you know, trying to find out about it. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, and I would see music videos and you'd see the studio with the big consoles and all this. So like, wow, that looks like fun. Um, and then one of my friend's bands went in to make a demo. You know, I was like, I don't know, 18, 19. And uh, I went with them that night to the studio and I was just fascinated watching the guy do this, whatever he was, you know, whatever they were doing. And obviously the days of analog tape and consoles and all that kind of stuff. So um, at the time, there were really no, there were very few schools. So, you know, I went in not knowing anything. I didn't have the four track when I was a kid and all that kind of stuff. Like I knew nothing about it. Um, so I found a school that's no longer there. Um, and it's actually a pretty, 
pretty good program. It, you know, it was a two-year program. Um, they taught us the basics right from the beginning. You know, this is what a compressor is. This is what an EQ is. Here's signal flow. Here's microphones. And, you know, we had time in a studio and that kind of stuff. The teachers were really good. Actually, Bobby Osinski was one of my teachers. Wow. Um, so they had, they had, you know, some good teachers. And one of the guys I sat next to in class got a job as the night runner at a studio called Cherokee here in LA, which is that location is longer, no longer there. The, the studio is still around, but and one day he came in and he would tell me about all this stuff. He would work like the midnight to four, uh, you know, midnight to 8 a.m. shift and then come to class. And he came in one day and he was like, yeah, I got fired. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I did something stupid. I got fired. I went, so they're looking for somebody? And he went, yeah, you should go talk to him. So <laughs> I literally like got up and walked out of class and went home and got my resume together and went to the studio and said, you know, I know you need somebody here. You know, they were like, how do you know? I'm like, well, I, that, my friend got fired last night, blah, blah, blah. They said, well, when can you start? And I was like, well, when do you need me? They said, four o'clock. <laughs> so I came back at four o'clock. You know, I became the night, the night runner. You know, I mean, once, you know, do the afternoon shift till you figure out where everything is. And then you're the night runner. And it, it, nothing fancy. It was cleaning up and vacuuming and <laughs> taking out the trash. And, you know, I was basically the night janitor doing food runs, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was a big studio. We had five rooms. So five assistant engineers, you know big setup staff. So it was fun. And I realized, you know, and I was still going to school, still learning, but now I had practical stuff. I, you know, I could see something in school and then go to work at night and see it and touch it. And, you know, um, and I was making friends at the studio, you know, with the engineers and everything. And they were always great about answering questions and all that. And I realized after a few months that I was learning more at the studio than I was in school. Um, so I just didn't do the second year of the program, um, which I don't, think was a bad thing in hindsight um i mean you know, the goal is to get a job when you get out anyway so if you already had it why not right yeah i was going to be qualified for the job i had at the time you know so so i just started um you know i started hanging out at the studio all the time i was just there you know i did that and you know kind of came up the traditional way i was you know an assistant and then i was or a runner and then i was the head runner then i became an assistant you know i knew enough so made my way through to become an assistant engineer and started doing some sessions um eventually got fired from that job because everybody got fired from the job at some point <laughs> um and i started doing live sound around town and stuff like that working for a friend or doing pa installations and stuff but still you know like uh, the live sound thing was actually really fun i was i thought for a minute like maybe i'll go that direction because it was i was having a good time i was in my early 20s you know traveling stuff like that and one of the guys I worked with at Cherokee, a guy named Bill Smith, who's still one of my best friends, he had left Cherokee and was started working at Capitol. Um, and I literally ran into him at a bar one night. Uh, I was walking out. He was walking in and he was like, good, you're here. I was going to call you anyways. Like, <laughs> come and sit down. And he, he was like, somebody quit yesterday. And, and I actually knew the guy who quit. Um, but you should come get this job. And I was like, man, I don't know. I'm having fun on the road, on the studio. He was like, no, 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 no. This is different. This is capital. And over the course of the next hour or so, he kind of convinced me that I should probably go back and maybe look at the studio thing. So I went home that night, got my resume together and went back the next day. Went, you know, he's like, go to the studio, ask for this guy. You know, so I went in. I was like, is Michael there? And he came out for some reason. I don't know why he came out <laughs> to the lobby, <laughs> you know, at the Capitol Records building. And I said, I, look, I know you're looking for somebody. Here's my resume. 
you know, I know somebody quit. And he was like, how do you know that? I said, well, I ran into Bill last night. And he went, wait here. And he went down. <laughs> obviously, I know now. He went down to the studio and went, who the hell is this guy? It was Steve. He's good. He'll, you know. And he came back up and he said, when can you start? And I was like, well, when do you need me? He said, four o'clock. I said, great. So I, <laughs> that was capital. It was four o'clock. <laughs> you know, the four to midnight shift is the shift you always start on. Um, and that lasted for 27 years. Amazing. <laughs> so I love a that. lot happened after that, but that's kind of the basic how I got. And then at Cap, you know, I started as a runner at Capital and then kind of made my way through that whole process again. But Capital was a complete, he was right. It was a completely different experience. Totally different. Capital is one of the, it's one of those anomaly facilities, kind of like Abbey Road, um, where you do so much stuff. You know, you're working on records and movies and TV shows and live performances and live broadcasts and, you know, Sometimes it's a party and sometimes, you know, I mean, the kind of people that were coming through, you know, suddenly I was setting up for big orchestral sessions. I had never seen that before and big band sessions. I'd never seen that before and movie scores and all, you know, locking up machines and video and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was, once I got there, I realized how different it was and how much fun it was to work on all this different stuff. So yeah, yeah it was great. That's awesome, man. It's, I'm noticing this kind of trend more and more in a lot of the the engineers that I talk to on this podcast where it's like people were hungry for it and they, you know, like like you said, like twice in your career, like someone tipped you off that there was an opportunity and you're like, okay, let's go for it. And then Mm -hmm. you just jumped all in. And I think that that hunger really goes a long way, you know, as far as impressing the people that you're trying to get in with and, you know, as far as like jumpstarting your career because you can't sit on opportunities or like, you know, debate whether it's a good idea or not like you know if it's a good idea and you just jump all in and and you do it because you're hungry you have to be prepared you know it's like sessions now it's like you kind of you know kind of always say yes but but you have to you know you have to know what you're doing going in so being prepared and and waiting you know looking for the opportunity being ready when it shows up of course yeah Yeah. It, it definitely makes sense like you you i mean you can't just jump you can't you're not going to get those opportunities or you're not going to last in those opportunities if you're not prepared for it. Like you have to, you have to at least have the right attitude going into it and and make yourself indispensable at those places. Yeah. I think, you know, if you're talking about the big facilities like that, the attitude is, is kind of all of it. Um, you know, I always used to say, you know, I can teach a monkey how to use the gear, you know, using a console is easy when you get down to it, running a tape machine is easy. It's, it's, can you, a, do you want to be there? Do you, are you willing to, to, especially, you know, if you're getting in a job like as a runner or something like an intern or something like that. I, I mean, obviously that's not the job you want. Nobody wants that job. <laughs> that job's a professional runner. <laughs> but, but you have to use that experience and, you know, and see it for what it is. It's, it's, that's your, it's college. You're learning, yeah. you know, you're learning your craft. And if you, if you just sit around and go, I'm just cleaning the floors. This sucks. I can do better than this. It's like, well, maybe you can, but. You know, first you got to learn to clean the floors and, and you, you know, you have to gain our trust. Like, yeah. you know, if you can't get the food order right, what makes you think I'm going to let you run a Pro Tools session? Absolutely. You know, that, that's, so it's the people that, that think they're better than that. And, you know, this suck. I already know how to run Pro Tools. It's like, well, maybe, but you don't know how to do it the way we need it done today. You know, yeah, absolutely. do you know how to, do you know how to run it on a scoring date? <laughs> do you know how to run it, you know? So, 
you know, well, I know how to record. It's like, well, but today we're going to do it this way because that's what the client wants. And you have to be able to to do all that stuff. So, of course, you know, but so again, it's the it's the attitude more than the technical knowledge, especially when I'm looking for to hire runners or interns or assistants, whatever that is. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you just have to pay attention to all of the little details in every job you do, regardless of if it's the thing you want to be doing professionally or not, you know? I remember, mm-hmm. like, one of my early mentors was a guy named Jack Richardson. His son is Garth Richardson, who did the first mm-hmm. Rage Against Machine record, all that stuff. Yeah, and, I know Garth. Yeah, yeah it, awesome guy. And um, I remember Jack telling me, he's like, if you get a job working with Garth, the first thing he gets you to do is get lunch for people. And he's going to order a sandwich in a weird way. He's going to want a club sandwich <laughs> with, like, the lettuce on the bottom and then the ham here and then this. He'll tell you exactly how he wants it stacked up. If you bring it back to him and it's not in that exact order, you're fired. He's like, mm-hmm. that's how it works because we want you to know that, like, we want to know that you're paying attention to those details and you're going to do it right the way we ask you to do it. And and he was like, that's it. Like, that's the first test. And if you can't do the yeah. lunch, then we can't trust you with anything else. Yeah. It's either that test or a very vague one. Yes. Get me a sandwich. You know, And then you have to make sure you know like use your head and do it and do it right and do it quickly yeah <laughs> <laughs> like i always tell people if you know if you get a job at capital you know we used to hire kind of a, a bit more advanced people because they did they did set up for us so like our runners had to set the rooms up like and they're setting up big orchestras and hanging expensive mics and you know but i used to tell them if you get a job at capital that's great you know you may you're probably very qualified for it but you have to have the attitude of you don't know anything because we're going to teach you how to make the coffee because we want the coffee made this way and we want mm-hmm. the cables wrapped up this way and we want, you know, so you have to be amiable to all that stuff, you know, when you're when you're getting in on it. And, and, you know, nowadays that's not, you know, the studio system's not around as much, but if you get a job with a Garth, or, you know, with a composer or with another engineer and you're the intern, you still have to, go through that stuff and you still have to learn and you have to learn how to do the job that you're being hired to do, not the job you think you're being hired to do. Of course. That makes sense. Yeah. Like, well, like you said, like every studio has their own way of doing things and you have to just, you have to be ready to do it that way. Uh, and, and, and I love that. Um, and I was curious to know, like you, you kind of mentioned in your story that you were still in school and you were working the night shift at the studio. And I'm curious to know, like, did you see a difference in even the way the studio handled things versus the way it was being taught in schools? Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and the other thing is, especially at a, a place like Capital or Cherokee, where we had multiple rooms, and you know, you had different guys every day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you you would see one guy and he would run his session this way and then the next day another engineer would come in and it would the session would run in a completely different way you know or a piece of gear would be used a completely different way or whatever that was you know today the u47 was pristine vocal mic and you know tomorrow it's being bashed over a drum kit you know so um i think you you know again i used school and i think even today the schools are i mean the schools are much better today but you know, they're there to teach you the fundamentals of stuff. Um, I don't think you can really, you can, you can learn how a piece of gear works, but I don't think you can really learn really how to work it till you're actually doing it um, or watching somebody else do it. You know, I learned so much from just watching other people. I mean, you know, it, even if I wasn't the assistant on the, the gig, just standing in the back of the room, watching what they were doing was, you know, and honestly, the, biggest lessons i learned were watching other people screw up Mm. you know watching people make mistakes watching people 
you know, say stuff that maybe they shouldn't have said in the control room and stuff like that. And you just file it away in the back. All right, don't make that mistake. <laughs> I just saw him do it. I don't have to do that. So <laughs> I love that. That's a, that's a really good detail to pick up on because so many people don't. Yeah. And watch the person who, you know, whose job you want. Like when we used to have, you know, new, new runners come in or whatever, you know, I mean, Al and I worked to, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about Al, but yeah. Al Schmidt and I worked together for 20 years and I would tell them, you know, first of all, Yes, it's great. You should watch Al. He's the best that's ever been. But in your position right now, you're not going to get his job. You want my job. I'm the, you know, the next level of the ladder in your career is my job, not his job. So watch me. And by the way, don't do what I do with Al. (laughs) (laughs) Don't lean over and change a compressor because that's what I do with him because I've been working with him for 20 years. You know, when I'm not working with him, I don't do stuff like that. So, you know, Again, always have your eye on the next the next job. You know, sit behind the Pro Tools operator and watch what he's doing because that's the job you're going to get next. You're not going to be sitting at the, you know, you're not going to go from runner to scoring engineer in one fell swoop. It's just not going to happen. I love that. That's great advice. That's, that's solid because I know a lot of people, yeah, they there's there's ways to uh to 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 learn properly and to work your way up the ranks properly and, and I think you just summed it up really really well there. As far as like becoming a uh, like an assistant engineer, that's something that you obviously did for a long time. And in your opinion, like what makes a great assistant to have in the studio? Like how, what makes someone stand out from someone else? Well, first of all, you have to know the studio you're in. Um, you know, again, it goes back to the intangibles. Pay attention. Um, be prepared. Um, you know, prepared is the best thing you could ever be. Um, you know, we we used to do sessions. I mean, we were there hours before the session. Um, you have to learn, you know, learn who you're, who you're assisting and what their needs are. Some guys have different needs than others. You know, some, some engineers are very technical and, you know, they want to run Pro Tools themselves or they want to do all the punching themselves or, you know, they're going to set up the session the way they want it set up. And other engineers are not that technical and they just, they don't care about the computer and they just want to, you know, you're running the computer, you do whatever you got to do, just make sure it's not messed up, you know, so, so being prepared you know, and I think you'll find as we keep talking, that's it's going to keep coming up is just being prepared. Um, and then you have to learn to anticipate as an assistant, you know, when, you know, I would always kind of like try to read the room and kind of figure out what he was going to ask for next. You know, I mean, again, when I worked with Al, it was different because we worked every day for so long. You know, eventually I knew what he was going to do, you know. If not before he knew it, certainly when he figured it out, I was figuring it out at the same time. So. <laughs> but I would have stuff ready. Like I would see, you know, congas come in and, you know, we're micing up congas. And I was like, well, you know, nine out, you know, half the time we end up putting a compressor on the conga. So I patched the compressor in and have it set. And then when he would go, do we have a compressor for the congas? I just hit the button and he didn't, you know, it was, it was already there. <laughs> so it's stuff like that that makes you you know, valuable as an assistant. And then knowing, again, knowing your place, you know, you're not the engineer, you're not the producer, just sit there and be quiet and run the tape machine or run the Pro Tools, whatever you're being asked to do. Um, headphone mix, you know, arguably the most important part of a session is the headphone mix. Um, and it can get daunting, you know, big sessions, you might have six or eight different headphone mixes going on. You got to make sure those are all right and you're listening to them. And, you know, if the musicians can't hear themselves, they can't play. So. Mm-hmm. stuff like that you know you're kind of without being in charge of the session you're kind of in charge of the session yeah 
Well, that's why I asked that because you know I think that a lot of people listening to this aren't working in bigger studios and they're not assistants, but they're working in home studios and trying to get their their own careers off the ground and maybe start their own home thing. Um, but I think all of these things that you're talking about here as an assistant, these are things that you have to be doing in a home studio environment as well. Like yeah. whenever you're working with clients, it's all of this, all of these little details that go a long way in terms of creating that experience for people that mm-hmm. keeps on coming back to you. So it's actually harder in home studio. Like I, you know, I have a home studio and now I'm the mixer and the assistant and the runner and the booking guy. And, the, you know, so being prepared is even more important because all of the assistant stuff I have to do before we start the session, you know, and, and all the runner stuff I have, you know, make sure the coffee is there, make sure we have water, you know, that all that has to be done before the client shows up so that when the client shows up, I can be mixer guy. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it definitely takes a lot of organization to make it run smoothly. Totally. Yeah. yeah, and you're always no matter what you think, you're always working for somebody else. Everybody has a client, from the artist on down. Everybody has a client, so you know, you're nobody's ever really in charge of any <laughs> session. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, again, everybody's serving somebody else. We're there to create. So, if you're the assistant, you're working for the engineer. If you're the engineer, you're working for the producer. If you're the producer, you're working for the artist. If you're the artist, you're working for the record label. It's, you know, whatever that is. So, yeah. you know, even if you're by yourself in your bedroom, you're, you know, you want, you're working for the audience. So yep. you want people to hear your music. So Yeah, so there's definitely that chain reaction and you have to be creating that experience that makes everyone in that chain have a great experience. Sure. So, yeah. And it's a, it's a hospitality industry. It's like running a hotel. You know, you gotta, you gotta be on your game. Um, you know, people are, you know, the idea is that people come and hire you. So, you know, you have to, if, if you're expecting them to give you money to do a job, you have to be giving them the service that, that they're paying for, whatever that is. I think that that's a great point because yeah, so many people, it's just like, oh, it's the music industry, but no, you're right. It's hospitality. And, and, and people forget that all the time. And Mm -hmm. that is, yeah, that, that. I haven't heard anyone describe it exactly like that, but I think that makes a lot of sense. When you think about it that way and you create that experience for people, it, it goes a real long way. So yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. And and as my friend Andrew Shep said, don't be a dick. <laughs> kind of the true. basic rule of the studio. Yeah. Don't be a <laughs> you dick. Can edit be cool. out. You can <laughs> edit out whatever you gotta edit no, out. I love, that. I love that. I love the that. The basic idea <laughs> is, you know, if if you're a jerk, they're gonna kick you out of the room. Very few people in this industry maybe three or four are so good that they can be jerks and they're not jerks, but you know, it's everybody can be replaced. Nobody is that good. For sure. The best guitar player in the world. I can find another best guitar player in the world, the best mixer in the world. I can find another best mixer in the world. So, you know, if you're a jerk and people don't want to work with you, you ain't going to work. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny. It reminds me of like, I think it was like my second or third date with my my now wife. We went to this like really divey bar in Toronto and, you know, graffiti all over the place. And the table we sat at, someone had written on it like the rules of life. And it was like, number one, don't be a dick. Number two, be cool. And I was like, yeah, that that is it. That is like, I, I love, like to this day, I always think about that and like remind myself that, you know, whatever, whenever you're feeling like, oh, I gotta, like, I want to say something, but you're like, nope, you gotta be cool. Don't be a dick, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, be on, and be on time. Yes, absolutely. Be early. That's that's the easiest one is be on time. Yeah. <laughs> when we were talking about your entrance into Capital, you were talking about how it was very different from the other studios that you had worked at. And you were not only learning the music side of things, you were learning 
more about composing and working on films and a whole bunch of other stuff that was happening there. It was run very different. So what was it like? How did you become so adaptable to to work on all of these different projects? Like, how did you learn this stuff? Was it all trial and error or were you shadowing people at that time to, to learn this stuff? Shadowing everybody. Yeah. Um, I mean, at Capital, we had over the almost 30 years I was there, it was always the best staff in the world. Always. And, and I don't say that like, yeah, we're the best staff. I mean, literally, we were the best staff in the world. Like the, <laughs> from the maintenance guys, the assistants, the office people, you know, it, it was all. And that's why people kept coming to Capitol. I mean, the rooms are great. They're big. And we had, you know, microphones galore. And but people came back because we could get the job done. Um, so. So, yeah, I was I was always, you know, those things always fascinated me especially when I started seeing like orchestral sessions and big band sessions and stuff like that. It was really interesting to me. Um, and a lot of fun. You know, I figured that out too. You know, I, I mean, like most people, I started in this thinking I was making rock albums and, you know, I'm going to do whatever you two and Rolling Stones and all that kind of stuff. And, and I've been lucky to do that stuff. But then I was like, well, this jazz stuff is pretty cool too. You know, this is pretty fun. And so, so I, I liked the variety of doing all that different stuff, so I kind of took to it. Um, but there was stuff I had definitely had to learn. Like I, le- I saw very quickly, especially on scoring dates, that everybody was reading charts, you know, and and I knew that was a problem because I had zero. I mean, I had like the smallest knowledge of written music, and I knew that was going to be a problem. And I actually went back to community college and I took a music theory class for a semester and I actually told my boss, I said, I'm going to go do this because these guys are reading charts and I don't know this. And he was, I was like, so I need like two days off a week, you know, two nights off a week to go do this. And he said, you're going back to school to learn that. I said, yeah, he goes, we'll pay for it. So the studio actually paid for it, Wow, which was, which was cool. Which makes sense. Yeah. I went back and took a music theory class. So now, even though I don't like read music to play, I can follow the chart. Uh, you know, I know what it means. I can, you know, when they say, look, we want to punch from bar 42 to bar 46. I got no problem. I got you, you know, um, you know, because we didn't have nice little counters, bar and beat counters on tape machines. <laughs> you know, yeah, you had to write it down. <laughs> We're not, you know, very rarely like on a on a jazz record. Very rarely are we using a click. We're not on a grid, you know, so so you have to do it the old fashioned way. You write the numbers down, you know, or drop the markers or whatever it is. So so there were some skills like that that I that I did have to learn. Um, and also in that music theory, you know, you learn how to talk to the musicians and talk to the composer and talk to the conductor and, you know, and you, cause you have to talk to them in their language. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, I can't look at the sheet and play it, but I can look at the sheet and know where I am and know where we got to go, you know? And I even use it when I'm mixing, if I'm mixing orchestral stuff, I'm like, wow, there's French horns doing an awful lot of crap here and I don't hear them. So something, you know, I'm, I'm missing something somewhere. Let's go back and try to find it you know so. yeah i love that <laughs> uh, and i think you bring up a really good point of just talking to people in their language because that is another way to make that experience better for everyone right you're not you're not the guy that's being like oh you know that section where you go like boop bop boop bop whatever you know it's like no it's like bar 44 this section right here like you know like it makes it very easy for people to understand what you're talking about but you also have to learn who you're talking to Fair. because sometimes you're talking to the guy and go you know that section where you go bop 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 that we're gonna punch that section you know because he doesn't know what chords he's playing. He's the <laughs> guitar player, you know, but he's good. So, 
So you have to adjust it to, you know, you don't want to go in with a rock band and like pull out sheet music and go, okay, at bar 42, they're going to look at you like, what are you talking about? Like, no, at the second chorus, you know, where the, where the big chord is, that's where I want to punch in. Okay, great. Find the big chord. So, you know, but if you're on a scoring session, they're going to look at you sideways if you go the big chord, you know. So, yeah. So, so yeah, you have to adapt to the environment you're in. You of course. Know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. As far as like working on all of those different styles of music, like like you said, like you maybe thought going into this, like I'm going to be the rock guy, I'm going to work on the U2 records or whatever, like recording those albums and getting the sounds for those kind of albums is very different than than working on a jazz record or, you know, maybe something that's like more intimate sounding and that kind of thing. Like there's a lot of different types of engineering to get certain atmosphere and certain sounds in, in music so yeah as far as learning that stuff was it again just kind of just like shadowing people and learning how that was done and just adapting it or yeah um and what i learned very quickly is it's actually not as complicated and not as different as a lot of people think it is to me there was not a lot of difference between you know a band like the rolling stones being out in the room recording and a band like Diana Krall being out in the room recording. One of them is terribly louder than the other, but it's basically the same techniques. You know, it's a band in the room recording. Whether they're playing jazz or playing rock, you know, it, it you still have the same from the engineering side. You know, you might use different mic here and there. You know, this might get more compressed than that, but the job is still the same. You're still trying to capture those guys on tape and you still have to have the headphones right and make sure they can see and set them up in the right place and make sure they're comfortable and all that kind of stuff. But the actual engineering of it is not that much different. I mean, you know, when you get into overdubs in a rock band and stuff like that, then it's a little bit different. But um, And then also, especially if you're working with really good musicians, like, honestly, I'm not getting a guitar sound. I'm just capturing a guitar sound, you know. That's whoever it is out there. I'm not going to mess with his guitar sound. He's, you know, he's a guitar player. He's worked on it for years probably to get that guitar sound. I'm just supposed to make sure it sounds the same out there in here as it does out there. So, you know, you might talk to, obviously you're going to talk to a producer, an artist, whoever it is. So this is the kind of vibe we want for this record. So, you know, oh, we want big bombastic drums on this record. Okay, great. So we'll mic it for big bombastic drums or no, we want this nice and intimate and dry and, you know, okay, so we'll put the drummer in the booth. It's it's that kind of stuff. You know, again, preparation. It's it's what you do before the session starts that dictates a lot of of the sound and how it's going to end up. Absolutely. But the details of the sound, honestly, nine times out of ten, it's the it's the musician that's doing that. You know, I used to see it with Al all the time. We would we would do tracking dates, and you know, whoever the band was, you know, quartet out there, and uh we'd get them in to listen as soon as we could. Like, take one or take two. Like, guys, come on in and listen. And they would listen. And nine times out of ten, they figured out what was wrong before we had to tell them. You know, the guitar player would go, I'm, I'm going to add a little top end to the amp. Is that okay? Like, yeah, sure, fine. You know, and the bass player, you know, we can lock into this a little bit better. And if, you know, if I play out a little more, is that okay? And suddenly they go back that, we didn't do a damn thing. You know, but the guitar is brighter and the bass is more present. And, the you know... Because they just did it. So it's always better when they figure it out than when we figure it out. Absolutely. No, that, that's a great tip. Yeah. The stuff we're making, the changes we're making are very subtle. Very subtle. It's all about what they're doing out there. Now, you do get into situations sometimes with people who don't know what they're doing. And then you have to, 
you know, then you work on the experience of watching all these really great guys do it for so many years. But, you know, it's still that get it right at the source. Yep, absolutely. But that makes sense, though. It's like if you're working with like a, like a John Mayer or something like that, you're not going to be like, hey, John, I'm, I'm going to change all the settings on your amp. It's like he knows what he's doing. He's, he's going to hear it himself. <laughs> yeah. He may say, yeah, it feels a little dull to me. And then, you go, okay, so now maybe I change the mic. You know, or whatever it is, I use it or move the mic or whatever it is. Um, you know, so again, those are the the real subtle things that, if you have time on a session, you can do. I'll say a lot of the sessions I do, I have two minutes to get drum sounds, and you know, I mean, I'm I'm just it's defensive recording. I'm getting levels, and then we go. <laughs> so you know, I don't have time to screw around with guitar mics. I. I have to have the idea in my head of what I want and who's playing and what we're going after. And I stick a mic out there and hopefully that's the right one. <laughs> so, you know, something's really off. Obviously, yeah. we stop and change it. But but that that's that shows your experience, right? Like you've done it so many times that you understand how to get that sound. And Or I'll set up options. I'll have two mics out there. This one, this one, this one, that one, go. You know, stuff like that. Of course. Prepare for the unexpected. Of course. And again, that, that comes back down to that experience that you're providing for people. You're, you're making it easy for them. They don't have to spend all day playing the same part over and over again to, get, to help you get your tones. It's like you're ready to go. If, if they hit take one, I got it. That's you awesome. Know, Love that's, that. That's the key. Again, we go back to being prepared. Um, you know, big sessions, when, when, you know, when the sax players are warming up, you know, getting their reeds warmed, you know, all that kind of stuff, we're getting levels. You know, when the when the cartridge, the drum cartridge guy is tuning the drums, I'm getting levels, you know, adjusting preamps and stuff like that. So that I mean, again, I might have, okay, can I hear the rhythm section? Okay, now can I hear the horns? Okay, let's go. You know, maybe the the first 15 minutes of a big session are kind of chaotic, but for the most part, we're just dialing it in and making and getting them comfortable, letting them hear the headphones and stuff like that. So for sure. Um, yeah, I'm always trying to to be a, way ahead of the game. Yeah. And I bet you, to some degree, your live sound experience really comes in handy there because in live sound, you have to work super fast. You don't have time to get levels throughout a set. Like you're, you know, you're just making it happen right away and, and rolling with it. So I'm sure a lot of that. Yeah. And live recording. Like I don't do a lot of like front of house anymore, hardly at all, but I do a lot of live recording. And it's the same thing. Like when the show starts, you're rolling and you know, that's going to have to go out on the live broadcast or on the DVD or whatever it's for. So, yeah, you, you, again, you don't have you hopefully you're rehearsed and you have sound check and stuff like that. But <laughs> but that'll, you know, sound check is like an opinion about what might happen at the show. Fair. And half the time <laughs> they're playing like softer than they would normally play. And always you're missing out yeah. on all the details that really matter in the end. Yeah. And they yeah. decided between sound check and the show that they're going to change the set and, you know. Oh, we're yeah. not starting with acoustic guitars. Okay. Thanks for telling me, guys. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you brought up that, you know, working on a jazz record isn't really that much different than a rock record or that kind of thing. And I, I'm assuming, too, that a big part of it, especially at a place like Capitol, is that Capitol is such a big room and you can do so much within that room. Like you can make it sound huge or you can tighten things up and add your gobos and all that kind of stuff and make things sound really quiet or throw someone in a booth. So I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of the, the vibe of those records has more to do almost with the atmosphere of the, of the, the setup than, than it does like the mics that you're using. You're probably using a 57 on a, on a guitar amp anyway, or something like that, you know, like does, does that sound true? Is that, would you say that that's a big part of it? Absolutely. hundred percent. Um, 
you know, we try to set the rooms up, set the musicians up so they're comfortable so that they can see, um, you know, if, if it's, you know, a lot of people in the room, we're putting them where we can use the leakage effectively, um, where they can hear, you know, a, a lot, a lot of times on big sessions, you know, they may not be wearing headphones or they may have one side so they can hear the click or whatever, but, you know, they're trying to balance themselves in the room. Um, wasn't unusual for like on a jazz record, you know, those big rooms of capital and I'd have everybody shoved in a corner, you know, right next to each other. So especially when you're trying to isolate, you know, leakage and stuff, everybody thinks, oh, if you put, if you spread them apart, the leakage won't be as bad. It's like, well, it won't be as bad, but now it's from across the room. So, you know, why does the piano sound like it's across the room? Well, it's because the guitar is across the room. So, so we put everybody really close together. So the leakage, you might get more leakage, but at least it's usable leakage. That's a good point. Those are the things I learned from assisting Al Schmidt and Jeff Emmerich and Ed Cherney and, you know, all those guys who who came up. You know, I mean, we really haven't talked about Al. All I've mentioned him a few times, but obviously Al Schmidt was my mentor for forever. Um, you know, and and he literally made records from the, you know, his uncle had a recording studio when he was a little kid. You know, he saw the recording from the 30s to two years ago, you know, and everything in between. So, yeah, you know, we would get into situations and he would do something and I would be able to say, why'd you do that? And he said, oh, well, back when I was recording at so-and-so in the 50s, you know, we didn't have six mics, so we just did this. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I love that. That's that's a, a a great thing to be able to work with someone who has seen the technology from that far back and like know completely different ways of working around things uh, mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. I, I remember even seeing that with some of my own mentors too, that that grew up in like older analog eras as well. And it, it's it's amazing, like the way they did these weird workarounds. It seemed sometimes like it's it's uh, you might be like, oh, there's a reverb plugin that does the same thing in one plugin, but it's like no, to actually understand the science behind the, why they did it this way, right? It, it makes yeah. a big difference. I mean, it wasn't unusual for you know for a session with Al for all the mics to be in Omni. You know, everybody, but but you're going to get all the leakage. It's like, yeah, you're right. But it's going to sound good because we have really good mics in Omni. And, you know, I can't separate those two guys are sitting right next to each other. So let's embrace it. Put them really close together and put them, you know, we'd have, we'd have mics on them. So we had a little bit of control over balance. But, you know, I mean, that's, uh, again, it goes back to preparation. You know, I'll talk to, you know, if I'm doing a big tracking date, I might talk to the producer or whoever and say, look, you know, let's overdub the solos because I can't take them out. If they want to fix something, I'm not able to do that. Or, you know, I just did a record a couple a couple weeks ago and we knew we were going to have guest singers come in and replace the vocals. The singer that was there was only singing a good guide vocal. So I had to make sure that that person was isolated so that we could take it out. Um, you know, there was another part where we knew a different guitar player was going to come in and play. So it was like, okay, well, I can't have the the guitar he's going to replace. I can't have that leaking into the horns. So we got to, you know, either overdub it or put it in another room or something like that. So, you know, you have to know, you know, you have to have an idea of what you're getting into. I'm always asking, where's this going after me? Where is it going after me? You know, some people can't handle recording at 192. So, you know, where's it going after me? It's going to Bob's home studio to do vocals. Okay, great. We'll do this at 96K because Bob's system is going to fall over at 192. So, you know, again, preparation, all about the prep, do your homework, you know? 
yeah. um, the big sessions we do, you know, Al and I would always joke by the time an hour before the session, we had half the mix done because we were thinking about the mix from the second we got the gig, you know, how we set the room up, what mics we were using, always mixing, always mixing, always mixing, you know, and being prepared. If we were, if we had everything scratched, clicked, and when the musicians started showing up, you know, we were having coffee and having, you know, that was, was a great day. Because we were there three hours before, four hours before. <laughs> the room was set up the day before, stuff like that. So always prepared. I love that. How, how did that relationship with Al form? Al work, was working at Capitol quite a bit when I started there. And uh, Bill Smith, the guy who, who brought me into Capitol, became Al's assistant. Um, so he was Al's assistant at Capitol. Um, and, you know, because Bill was my friend, I would get dragged in you know he introduced me to al al and i kind of hit it off over like baseball basically we were both dodger fans so bill was not a baseball fan so i could come in in the morning and talk baseball with al um but a lot of those big sessions you know they need you need more than one person in the room one assistant can't do it so i would get because bill knew me and knew what i could do i would get dragged in on the sessions a lot like okay, you know, you watch the headphones, I'm going to run the tape machine. Or, you know, you run the live two-track while I do this. So, you know, there always had to be two or three on, on the big scoring dates too. There, you know, were so many machines. You know, there are always two or three assistants. So I would get dragged into those sessions a lot. Um, and then, so I was just doing lots and lots of sessions with Al and Bill and I was having fun and, you know, they're big sessions. So, you know, why wouldn't you want to be around all those, you know, all those big sessions, they were the big records that you wanted to work on and you wanted to see go down. Um, so for about three or four years, I was just doing that. Uh, Bill was Al's assistant, and but I was on the side. And then at one point, Bill left Capital. He had some opportunities, you know, to further his own career, but he would still come back and work with Al. Well, at that point, I was an assistant at Capital. So because you still needed a staff engineer in the room, I would be assigned to those sessions. So if Al was coming in, I was the capital assistant. Bill was still coming in to be Al's assistant, but I was always there. So it just got to the and and Al liked me. We got along. So he just said, like, look, I want Steve on all my sessions. So, you know, and then it it was, you know, a few times Bill wasn't available. So I would just do it. And, you know, I learned the ropes and, you know, we did that for probably a year or two. And then at some point, Bill decided he had another job to do and he was going to go do a record. And he said, you know, I think, I think it's time for me to move on. So he told me that one day, he said, I'm going to tell Al tomorrow. Okay. So tomorrow came and they went upstairs and had a talk or whatever. And we did the session that day and the next session, the next day or whatever, Bill wasn't there and I was there. And that's kind of, you know, and then, then I was Al's assistant. Um, and right about that time was when Pro Tools started to come around. So, so right after Bill left, the job of being Al's assistant, the dynamic of it changed a little bit because suddenly it wasn't tape machines, it was Pro Tools. Um, and as the Pro Tools operator, you know, you become a little more tied to the session, let's say. I wouldn't say invaluable, but it, it's just, you know, the dynamics changed a bit. Um, and Al, Al knew what Pro Tools did. And over the years, he got pretty adept at getting around on it, but he wasn't going to sit there and set up sessions and punch in and out and, 
you know, do editing. And he didn't want to know about that stuff. That became my job. So as, as the years went by, again, now I had this specific job that I did. I did the editing. I did the tuning. I did the, you know, and Al did the other stuff. And, and we just kept working that way. And it was a really good job. And Al was really busy. I mean, when we, you know, when I took over from Bill, I mean, for the, for the first 10 or 15 years, we were working six days a week. You know, I knew my schedule six months in advance because Al was so busy. And I basically spent 80, 85% of my time just sitting next to Al doing sessions. And as we, and as the relationship went on, you know, I could take more liberties and stuff because I knew what he wanted to do. He knew what I, you know, I had, you know, by the end of it, I had my job. He had his job. Half the time we didn't even have to talk to each other. He'd just turn around and look and I go over there and, you know, or whatever. Did you do the thing? I did the thing. And, you know, we just move on with it. Um, And it was great. And then there was other sessions where, you know, I was like, I'm not doing the overdubs. You know, they got a week of overdubs. I'm not doing those. Like, I don't want to do it. They can't afford it. So he would track the record and then I would do all the overdubs and then he would mix. (laughs) Stuff like that. (laughs) So um, it got to be a really special relationship between us over the time. Um, You know, we ended up traveling around the world together. So doing all kinds of stuff. You know, our wives were friends. You know, it was, it, it became, it became a real friendship between the two of us. That's amazing. But always, always on the professional level too. It's funny. People are like, like we didn't hang out that much outside the studio. People were like, isn't that weird? I'm like, no, we hang out at the studio all the time. Yeah, you guys were basically family anyway. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it was a really great relationship. And and as he as he got older and decided he, there were certain gigs he just didn't want to do anymore, you know, for whatever reason. And he would now, and so he would give them to me, which was great. So, you know, and, and, and in the last, you know, few years of his career, as he started working less, which was kind of his choice, I had more time, you know, by that time I had my own clients. And so it was kind of just a really fluid thing that happened, you know, Mm -hmm. and then because I was still on staff at Capital, if somebody came in and needed help, I would help them out. You know, I mean, the assisting I did in the last 10 years at Capital was like, a big scoring date or the Oscars or, you know, or Tommy Vacari's coming in. He wants you to assist for him. You know, Glenn Johns is coming in. Uh, yeah, I'll do that. I'll sit to Glenn <laughs> for a week, you know, or yeah. whatever it is. Cause I was still learning from those guys too, mm-hmm. you know, or Sean Murphy's coming in to do a big scoring date. Yeah, I'll do that. Cause I want to see what he's doing, you know? Mm-hmm. So for me on those, those occasions where I was the pro tools operator or the assistant, you know, sometimes I didn't, you know, there were big scoring dates where I was the assistant, but they had a Pro Tools guy, they had a mix, you know, I kind of got a headphone mix up and then I just watched, you know, but I was watching guys who were really good at their job. So again, it's, you know, how did I learn to score films? By watching guys score films. <laughs> so, Makes sense. you know, and figuring it out. Yeah. So I, I was always, I mean, up until now, I'll still go to friend sessions and see what they're doing. You know, I like learning. I like seeing a different perspective on it. But you're clearly passionate about it, and that's what keeps you doing it every day, right? So one of the things that I was curious about is, you know, you talked about working with Al and how you guys were often working like six days a week, that kind of thing. And I think that there's probably a lot of people listening to this thinking, yeah, that would be amazing to work with a big engineer and to be their assistant and that kind of stuff. But I'm sure a lot of people are also concerned with like the work-life balance as well. You know, and and it seems like a lot of these people that have been that have made it in this industry are are 
workaholics to some degree, you know? So I'm curious to know, like, how was that for you as far as like striking that balance? You mentioned that you have a wife. So like, did you feel, did you feel pressured to like keep always working just to hold on to this, hold on to this job and to have this career or like, how, how did that work out for you personally? Yes. So, so yeah, I have a wife, I have three kids, um, you know, dog, the whole nine yards, mortgage, all that good stuff. I will say that I didn't always handle the work-life balance in the best way, probably. I missed a lot of birthdays. I missed a lot of dinners. Um, but I was also making a living. Um, I had a good job. I had a steady job. I had benefits. I had retirement plan, all that kind of stuff. Um, working with Al, especially working with Al, we didn't work killer hours. You know, we kind of worked, you know, I would get there at nine and he would come at 10 and by six or seven, we were kind of finished with the day so we could go home. Um, you know, we tried not to work on Sundays and, and he understood if I had something like, Hey, Al, it's kid's birthday on Friday. Can we get out early? Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll end early on Friday or you can go and I'll stay with so-and-so or whatever. Um, cause Al had a big family too. Um, so yeah. I mean, you know, you just kind of work it out. It's the double-edged sword. It was like, you know, there's work-life balance, but there's also bills to pay. And if you're not working, they're not paying you, you know? Um, I was lucky I had stuff like vacation time. So I could take a vacation every year, you know, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's really tough. Even now, you know, my kids are all grown and out of college and, you know, out of the house but it's, there's still a work-life balance thing. You know, I still, you know, and, and now even more so, you know, not having a real job anymore. So I, we should probably say right now when we're recording this in November of 2022, um, Capital has closed, per, uh, not permanently, temporarily closed. So the studios in the building are shut down for earthquake renovations for a couple of years. Um, and the whole staff got laid off. So as of now, I'm a independent recording engineer. I'm, I haven't been on staff at Capital for a few months. Um, so that's a whole different dynamic too. Now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm my own boss and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't have a weekly paycheck and a 401k and vacation time anymore, but, um, but yeah, you know, my wife is constantly on me. Like, you know, can you please take a couple of days off this week so we can get stuff done? You know, and, and my instinct is to say yes to everything. Um, but I'm learning. I'm still learning. Yeah. It's been 50 years and I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's always just something that's, that's crossed my mind. You know, it's like, cause, because it sounds like there's a lot of guys in this industry that really work themselves like all the time. And it's, it's not because it's not necessarily because they, they want to, uh, you know, that they're trying to avoid their families or anything like that. It's like, we just have this genuine passion and love for the work we do. So it's, it's fun to do. And, you know, yeah. we, we want to keep doing it. But but I can definitely see how certain some sometimes that could get in the way of personal relationships, and I think and I was curious to get your opinion on that because because you've been at this for so long and and uh, had such a successful career with it. I'm assuming a big part of it too is finding the right partners in life as well, and you know, people that support you and all that kind of stuff as well, right? Absolutely. I, you know, I you know I, my wife is a blessing. She's you know she gets it. She understands why I do it, and she knows I love doing it. That it's you know it's not really work for me. It's fun. Um, um, and she also understands that you have to pay the mortgage. <laughs> so, and if you don't go to work, they don't pay you the money. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think, you know, if you think you're going to get rich doing this, you really have to stop and 
check that attitude because that ain't gonna happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you can make a good living at it, you know. But you do have to work at it. But it is, but it is fun, you know. I was joking with my friend Nico Bolas. You know, we see each other all the time, and he used to have a studio at Capitol. And at one point, he was like, hey, "This is it. I'm done. I'm gonna quit. I'm gonna go do that." I said, "No, you're not. You're not gonna quit." I was like, "You can't quit." He's like, "Why?" I was like, "You're a lifer. You have to do this." He's <laughs> like, "Yeah, I guess you're right." So, you know, <laughs> so I mean, even Al, Al never, you know, he never retired. He slowed down and he stopped taking gigs he didn't want to do, but he never retired. You know, I mean, we were talking about working three days before he passed away. We were planning the gig for the week after. So, you know, and he did it because he liked it. Hmm. He didn't, you know, he didn't need the money. He didn't, you know, but, but he liked coming to the studio and he liked seeing the musicians and seeing the guys. And, you know, it's, it's part of it is my social life is intertwined with my business life too. You know? Those are my friends. I see, you know, the musicians and the other engineers and the techs and, you know, those are the guys I see. It's 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 almost harder now that the studio has shut down and I'm not there every day. You know, me getting to go to another studio to record is like, woohoo, it's party day. You know, this is fun day. <laughs> I get to go do a session. You know, I'm not sitting. I mean, as much as I love my house and I love sitting at home and I love mixing and all that kind of stuff, you know, I also love not doing that sometimes and getting out into the world and seeing people. Of course. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess it also ties back to everything we've been talking about where just like your level of preparation goes a long way with this kind of stuff. And when it comes to that work-life stuff, it's just like you, you when you know something important is coming up, you prepare for it so that mm -hmm. if you are in the yeah. studio, you've already dealt with it or you've taken care of it, whatever. Like you're solving those problems ahead of time so that you're not scrambling last minute and potentially destroying relationships or whatever, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you're working at home. My wife knows that if there's something that she you know, I need you here on Thursday. Great. As long as she tells me, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I'll be there. Or, you know, we're having the kid's birthday dinner this Sunday. Great. Put it on the calendar. We won't book anything that day. We'll make sure. So, you know, communication is a big part of it too. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it happens. Of course. You know? <laughs> there was one, I think my middle son, Austin, was turning like eight or nine. And I had been threatened. Like, you're, you will be home for dinner tonight. You know, it's Austin's birthday. You will be home for it. And I was like, okay, I don't have anything. You know, I have a, a thing in the morning. I should be done by two o'clock. I will, you know, and it was like, no, you will be home for dinner tonight. They're like, okay, 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 okay. And at like one o'clock, Paula, the studio manager came down. She said, I need you to do a session tonight. I was like, nope, can't do it. Austin's birthday. I can't do it. She said, no, 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 I really need you to do the session. I said, no, I can't do it. This Tommy's coming in to help. I said, no, Paula, I can't do it. I can't. I was, and she was really like aggressive with it kind of unusual i was like what is this that you need me so badly for that one of the other guys can't do so well i'm not allowed to tell you who the artist is but it's a string date and but i but i need you to do it i said paul i'm not doing it i don't care who it is I'm not doing it she said it's michael jackson and he's showing up i was like okay give me a second <laughs> i called my <laughs> wife <laughs> and i said and, and i called and she was like what and i was like all I'm going to say is Michael Jackson and he's coming. And she went, all right, we'll see you tomorrow. Cause she knew that was a big deal, you know? Um, so it was the invincible record. And, you know, the funny part was, is we were, we were kind of at a lull in the session. They were like rewriting some parts 
And Michael said something like, you know, oh, I'm sorry this was so last minute. I hope you guys didn't have plans. <laughs> and Tommy Vicari, the, en- the other engineer, was like, well, he had plans. And I was like, oh, you asshole. Why'd you tell him, you know? <laughs> and he said, what? He, you know, he went, it's his kid's birthday. And he's oh, I'm so sorry. You, miss, you know, how old's, you know, how old's your son? Oh, it's Austin. He's, he's not, please tell Austin I said happy birthday and I'm so sorry. And, you know, so I got home that night and it was, you know, hey, Austin, Michael Jackson said happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> worked out <laughs> yeah <laughs> well yeah that, i mean that, that's a great example of just like, that level of communication right <laughs> yeah that's yeah. awesome yeah well another another thing that i wanted to ask you about because it's it's such a big part of the stuff that you're working on these days is dolby atmos and mm-hmm. i know you're doing a lot of that you were actually one of the first people in the industry to start mixing atmos so <laughs> you know i'm curious to know like how what was that experience like working in Atmos for the first time? For it being su- something so new and that no one had any, like, there was no structure for it, you know? So how did you how did you go all in with that? So, um, like most things, I was forced into it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, we know a lot in hindsight now. But at the time, you know, I got called into a meeting with my bosses at Capitol. And they said, look, we're going to tear apart Studio C. And we're going to make it a Dolby Atmos room with all these speakers. And then when that's done, you're going to mix a record. And I said, okay, why are we doing this? You know, they were like, because the record label wants it done and they're going to give us a lot of money to do it. So we're going to do it. Okay, fine. So, you know, it took about a month and we, you know, tore the walls out and put speakers in and Dolby came down and, you know, and all throughout the process, I was, kind of learning how the system worked and you know just the technical part of it how the renderer worked and how we were routing stuff it was you know this was 2016 2017 something like that the setup was terribly complicated dante routing through three computers and all this other stuff so that part of it was a little was daunting to learn just because it was so much technical stuff i had never you know i hadn't worked with dante before or any of that kind of stuff so luckily i had tech guys and dolby people that were kind of doing that so you know i had done 5.1 mixing before i'd done you know again movie scores are usually in 5.1 so working in surround was not the problem it was learning how to how this new system worked the mixing with objects and this doesn't really matter where the speakers are and a scalable system and all this stuff so we finished the room and they basically said here's this rem record automatic for the people Um, the band will be here in two weeks. Have fun. And everybody left. (laughs) And I was kind of by myself to figure out how to, again, not so much how the system worked, because that was, I kind of knew that, but it was how do I get music to come out of this system, like, and sound musical? How do I fill the room with music, but, you know, still make it work and not have stuff wandering around? And, you know, um, I realized very early on, myself that this was not a film and i i didn't want to treat it like a film score you know when you know to back up a little bit the the tools we use for dolby atmos they had been around for a while atmos had been around for a bit because the film guys use it you know all you know movies are mixed in dolby atmos and it was the exact same tools that the movie people use that we were going to now start using to make music so so atmos wasn't a new thing it was just new in music and when you're making a film you're beholden to what's on the screen in front of you. 
So if something is distracting you in the back of the room, that's pulling your attention away from the screen, which is pulling your attention away from the story. So that's not a good thing. In this scenario, I thought, well, I don't have a screen. And they told me that all these speakers are full range and that the system is full range. And everybody kept saying, the great part about it's object-based. It doesn't matter where the speakers are. It'll scale. It'll do this. So room to room, it'll match. And I kept thinking, well, so I can put stuff wherever I want. And they were like, yeah, you can put stuff wherever you want. It doesn't matter. So I thought, all right, well, I'm going to do this then. And my whole attitude going in from the very first mix I ever did was, I want to fill this room with sound. I mean, obviously, I have to make it musical and the mix hold up. and But I want to fill the room. I don't want it to be the band in front and a little bit of reverb in the back. Like, that didn't sound interesting to me. So I just kind of played around and experimented with how to fill the room and still make it musical. And it's interesting because the Dolby guys that set the room up, they would come in every day or two just to see how I was doing, you know, and because we were still buzzing out a new system. We were still finding little technical things here and there. And my friend, Nate Kunkel, who's a great mixer in his own right, was one of the guys who from Dolby at the time who set the room up. And so Nate would come in on his way to work and we'd sit and have coffee. And I go, you know, Nate, what, you know, trying to mix a song and, you know, the bass drum did this thing. Like, how do you deal with that stuff? And he'd look at me and go, I don't know. You're the first one that's ever done it. (laughs) Like, Okay, thanks. Like, so every time I had a question that wasn't technical, it was, I don't know, you're the first one that's ever done it. So basically, I had to make it up by myself. Um, So I had two weeks and they gave me two weeks. And, you know, then Scott Litt, the producer, came in and there's a whole another long involved story about that particular album. But um, yeah, it worked out. And then, you know, I finished that and they said, okay, we'll do this song. And so I'd mix that song. And then they'd say, okay, do this song. And then, you know, I was just getting these songs to mix from the record label. And, but I didn't know why, you know, nobody could listen to it. If you didn't know me or somebody at Capitol, you couldn't hear Atmos, you know, it was that kind of thing. But they just kept saying, well, just keep mixing this and keep mixing and mix that and mix this and mix this. And so I was mixing all these, all these different kinds of songs. And we would have, you know, we would do the dog and pony show where we'd come in and show people the room and this is Dolby Atmos and, you know, stuff would fly around and, then we'd play Rocket Man for them and play whatever other mixes. And, and you know, I would do a record. i go, you know, I just did this record. This would be pretty cool in Atmos. And they'd go, fine, mix it. And But we didn't know why we were doing it for like <laughs> the first year. It was me and, and Nick Reeves was the other engineer that I kind of dragged in like, I need help. So, um, and, you know, I came up with all these techniques with the object bed and all that kind of stuff and how I spill my reverbs and, you know, that was stuff I made up just out of necessity because I didn't have any tools. So I made up my own tools. And and then we found out that Universal and Dolby had this deal with Amazon and they were going to make this little speaker. The, the It was like, like the little smart speaker. And that Amazon, they had a deal where Amazon was going to start streaming this music in Dolby Atmos. And then we found out later that Tidal was going to do it. And then Dolby and Universal Music had these deals in place when we started doing this, obviously, because they were spending a lot of money on it. <laughs> and uh, but we didn't know we we didn't know what was happening. So for the first year or two, we were mixing blind. Nobody could hear what we were doing unless you knew us, you know, or somebody in a in a system. Um, it was this weird thing that was going on. I mean, we weren't secretive about it, but we just couldn't play it for anybody. Um, you know, people would come in and be like, "Can we hear the Atmos?" And we were like, "Yeah, sure, come on in, hear the Atmos." You know. I mean, every day I would get a phone call like, so-and-so from this company is coming 
down, can you give him the dog and pony show? The so-and-so from the record label, so-and-so from Ford or wherever, you know, like every single day we were doing playbacks for people. Um, and then obviously it trickled out with Amazon and Tidal. And then once Apple got on board, that's when the floodgates opened. But by that time, I had been, already been mixing for like three years or four years, whatever mm. it was. So I had already done, you know, a couple hundred songs or whatever. Um, and, you know, I figured out ways to do stuff with old three tracks and the old Blue Note catalog and Miles Davis and all that kind of stuff. So we were really pioneering this thing. At, you know, we were learning it at the same time as we were making it up, <laughs> really. <laughs> so um, it was really fun. And it still is really fun. Um, so luckily, a lot of the techniques that we came up with translated really well. So when people could start hearing it on headphones or sound bars or, you know, home theater systems, all that kind of stuff, we realized we were quite surprised, actually, and like, wow, okay, the stuff we did actually works. So we we were right this time. You know, a couple things didn't work, but, um, you know, we're and we're always adjusting. I mean, I'm still... Just you know, people are like, "I got your template." I was like, "Yeah, that was a template from three years ago." It's totally changed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the basics are the same, but yeah. How would you say that your mixes have evolved since you since when you first started? It's just in the way that you know. Obviously, we've learned what works and what doesn't work. Um, you know, now with Apple and the spatial headphone thing, the binaural. You know, we pay a lot more attention to the headphones. Like when I first started, they were like, "Don't worry about the headphones. It's not a headphone thing. It's a speaker thing." So. For the first two years, I never, I mean, I would put the headphones on sometimes just to kind of listen, but but we never really paid attention to it. Now we pay close attention to the binaural mix um, because we know that most people are going to hear it that way. Um, it's tough because the binaural mix is constantly changing because the technology they're using to play it back is constantly changing. The mix doesn't change, just the way you hear it changes. So mm. that's kind of a moving target, which is, you know, it can be a problem, but it's the problem we have to deal with right now. You know, we're still we're still in such the early stages of this. You know, again, I've been doing it longer than anybody else for music, obviously, literally longer than anybody else. And I've only been doing it for four or five years. So, you know, it's such an early stage. And, you know, for the people that are out there going, no, it's never going to work. It's like, we don't know that yet. It's, you know, we haven't done it yet. People haven't, you know, it, it hasn't rolled out into the cars and to stuff like that. So, you know, give it a second. Let's let's see if we can, you know. Let's see mm -hmm. if we can make this work before we just poo-poo it. And, you know, technology has caught up a lot from the days of 5.1, too. You know, 5.1 was a very fragile system. If if your speakers weren't calibrated perfectly, you know, the, it didn't play back right. And if, you know, if somebody didn't have a center channel at their home theater, well, then they lost part of it. And if you had a lamp where the speaker was supposed to go in the back, then it didn't play back right. You know, this system is much more robust um, because it's a scalable system, you know, now we're starting to see consumer stuff come up with remote speakers that calibrate themselves and stuff like that. So, so I think, and, and the interesting part is in hindsight, it was great because companies like Dolby, Dolby and Universal, you know, by the time this was available to the public, we had thousands of songs ready to go. You know, I mean, I think when Amazon released whatever year it was, I, I think we had like 3,500 songs, like, there that day all done and ready to go like when they hit the button there were thousands of songs already there um so this is kind of the first time that that we as the content providers have been ahead of the consumer hmm. so and now also the consumers have something that they're shooting for they know what they have to play back 
You know, like when Amazon was building that little speaker, at one point they would bring it, you know, once we found out about the little speaker, like, okay, this is what we're doing. They would bring it in. It was still in development. They would bring it and show it to us and get our opinions about stuff. And we were in a hotel across the street. They had set up a demo, you know, and they're playing the stuff for us and we're listening. And and one of us, it might've been me, I don't remember who it was, said like, have you guys heard what we're doing at Capitol? They were like, no, we haven't heard the room at Capitol. And we were like, come on. And we took the guys that were building the speaker and brought them and sat them in front of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of speakers at Capitol and played them some of our crazy mixes. We played them the more crazy ones. And they were like, we have to play that back? And we were like, yeah, that's what this little (laughs) speaker has to do. And they were like, oh, okay. All right, we didn't really get the scope of that. So it was great because we were able to educate them. It It wasn't us going, this is what the speaker does. How do we make our music? fit into it. It was, here's the music your speaker has to play back. So Interesting. it was great. And now, you know, the consumer systems that are coming out now, they know what they're going to have to play back. They know some of the crazy stuff that we do. It's not all crazy, but yeah, you know. That, that's cool that you were at least able to go back and forth with the manufacturing and, and like, you know, figure out how to make it work so that it was done properly. Because, yeah, yeah, I agree, like, you know, to, to that argument of like, is this, is Atmos actually going to be a thing that is going to be relevant for music, you know, like, like you said, it's, it's hard to know for sure. And a part of me has kind of always felt like, I don't think a lot of people are going to invest into getting these massive systems, you know, the surround systems, but I like your point about once you actually found out about the little speaker that changed how you, or the headphones, that's how you changed. It changed your perception of why, like what you should be listening for when you're mixing and, and how people are going to consume it. I do think that from that perspective, people are probably going to adapt that because I mean, it already is happening where it's like you have Apple music, you're just, you're getting the Dolby mixes anyway. Um, so it, it's interesting. I, I'm curious to know, like, I'm, cur- I'm curious to see how it ends up working in the long term. And I think, I think it's going to just come down to like really the technology becoming accessible to people. And, and on both sides. So, you know, right now, you know, I have engineers, mixers calling me all the time. Like, do I have to do this? Do I need to buy all these speakers is, you know, or, you know, I see people online, like, how's the, you know, bedroom person is supposed to do this. Well, you're not. You're in your bedroom. You're not supposed to be doing that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yes, there's an investment to this. Um, and not everybody needs to be doing it. If you, if you, you know, I, I know plenty of guys who are busy enough doing stereo. They don't have time to do Atmos, you mm-hmm. know, um, and they don't want to, and that's okay. Um, and I know other people who are like, look, I just don't have the money to invest and building my room and putting spin. I was like, you're right. And the other thing is it's, especially now, it's still in its infancy. So nobody's really sure how we're all getting paid to do this. <laughs> um, you know, because the, the record companies and the streaming services, they're all still trying to figure out how they're getting paid. You know, how is the consumer paying for it? Who's paying for the mixes? Who's not paying for the mixes? It's It's not necessarily a... If you build an Atmos room, people are going to start sending you mixes to do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm very lucky. I got in on the ground floor and I had a record company that was feeding me work, you know, because I was on staff with them. I was working constantly. Hmm. Um, you know, now I've now, even though I'm not on staff with them anymore, I'm still working for them. You know, they're still sending me mixes to do. So, um, but I know other people who, you know, real soul searching about whether or not they were going to make that investment because were they going to be able to make their money back on the investment? It's, it's not inexpensive. It's, you know, good speakers cost a lot of money, you know? Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it doesn't have to be 
you know, you don't have to spend, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on big PMC or ATC speakers or whatever. It's, you know, you don't need 20 speakers. It's, you know, but you need, there is a, there's a minimum to get in. Of course. Um, you can't do it on headphones. I mean, I know there's people out there that are trying and they're doing it, but unless you've done a lot of mixes on a speaker system, you're probably not going to get it right in headphones. It may sound good in the headphones, but it's probably not going to sound good on a speaker system um, unless you've really had experience working on the speaker system. And and I know people don't want to hear that because it's easy to do it in headphones. And, and you know, I'm sure there's some people who are doing it effectively. But, you know, nine times, you know, I would QC mixes sometimes. We would get stuff into the record label. They'd be like, this kind of sounds funny to us. Can you listen to it? And I'd be like, yep, that wasn't, that was done on headphones. By somebody who had never heard it on speakers. You could tell. And then you do a little digging. And they were like, yeah, they told us they could do it. But really, they were just doing it in headphones. Yeah. So, I mean, and I hate to be a bummer about that. Because, you know, a lot of our industry right now is, no, if you're talented and you have a laptop, you can make a record. And that's true. But in a way, it's true. Um, but with this, there's a little, there actually is a little more to it. And it will become more accessible to people. And it will get better. And there will be less expensive speaker options and stuff like that. And people will start again, like, like it's developing on the consumer side, it's going to develop on the pro audio side. It already has, you know, I mean, in this short amount of time, it went from Capital studios, investing hundred thousand dollars, whatever, you know, three computers and Dante systems and routing and blah, 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 this huge complicated thing to now I can do it at home on one computer, you know? So, so it's already changed dramatically. The, the the cost and the amount of stuff you need to get into the game. But the question is, once you're in the game, who's going to give you the money to mix? Absolutely. That's, that's still a little, you know, and the artists are like, well, this is cool, but who's going to pay for it? Do I have to pay for an extra mix? You know, there's nothing in the budget that says that. As budgets move forward, it'll be part of the budget. You know, the record companies will say to the, like, here's your budget, and don't forget, we need an Atmos mix. Absolutely. So, you know, it definitely seems like Atmos at this stage is really more of like a major label kind of play. You know, like the the, the person working with the local bands probably they don't need those Atmos mixes. No one's care. No one cares about those. But if you're working with like a, a major label and you're working with bigger artists, like there is actually an audience out there for it. So you know, it's worth spending a little bit more money there. Well, and the, it's demanded. Yeah, I mean, I know at Universal, like most of the new records, they wanted day and date releases, a stereo and Atmos. You know, you had you had to, and I know Apple was kind of encouraging in quotes Atmos mixes <laughs> from people. <laughs> you know, they were saying stuff like, you know, if you don't, if we don't have an Atmos mix, you're not going to get this service from us and stuff like that. So, um, you know, these companies have they've dropped a lot of money into this too. So they're looking to get their money back too. Um, so that's one of the other reasons I think it's not going to go away very soon. Is you know, there's some big companies who have invested in this. And yeah, and it's not just one big company. It's it's multiple big companies. Yeah, point. and, you know, don't think Apple invested all this money and time to play Atmos mixes on earbuds. You know, there's, there's I, I am not privy to anything, but I can't imagine there isn't more coming, that there isn't some speaker systems and, you know, something that, you know, the HomePod or whatever it is. Again, I don't, I don't have any, ins- it's Apple. Nobody has inside information. Yeah, they've, they've built it into Logic already. So like, you know, everyone already has access to it. So it only makes sense that the next thing that they put out is going to be a consumer version of Atmos for for people with Logic to start mixing on, you know? 
Well, that's already there, but even just for people at home to consume it, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be it's going to be part of your Apple CarPlay, and it's going to you know it's been in your phone for years. It's just it was it was there for movies and stuff, you know. But you know, I I can't imagine that they're not going to drive the hardware side of this a little harder. Absolutely, so, yeah. All all these companies, they're all going to start start doing it. So, um, you know, don't think that that there isn't a lot of foresight going into a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Again, I was mixing for years without knowing where anything was going. There was a plan. I just didn't know about it. Of course. Yeah, all these companies have plan, like have massive 10-year plans that we just don't know about. So, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I talked to car guys. You know, we would do demos for the car people because everybody's like, you know, when are we going to get in a car? Well, it takes like seven years to develop a, a new model of a car. So even if Ford said today, like, you know what? We're going to put Atmos in all our cars. You're not going to see that for five or seven years because they have to redesign the system into the car. You know, so they're already designed, you know, next year's model was designed five years ago. So it's a longer, you know, it takes a little bit longer for some of these things to to evolve. Yeah. So, you know, give it a chance. We'll see what happens. Of course. Yeah. Well, last thing I'm curious to know about when it comes to Atmos is that you've obviously had to remix a lot of classic albums in Atmos. And I'm curious to know, like, what does that process typically look like? Are you starting from, like, raw tracks like they would have back then? Or are you working from stems? Like, how are you preserving some of the, like, the, the original sound that we're all used to hearing? Like, what does that typically look like? It, it depends on the record. Um, it depends on when it was done and what assets we have. Um, in the best, well... First of all, anything newer than five or seven years ago, you're probably not going to have stems. Um, so new records are easy because we have the stems. When you're going back to old records, we're usually going back to the multi-tracks, the original multi-tracks. Um, the stuff that's the most difficult is the stuff where Pro Tools started to come in to play. <laughs> so like from the 90s up to now, is really difficult because honestly they didn't know what they had they you know record company you know people turned in hard drives and who knew what was on those drives it's it's you know finding finding those assets is much more difficult um so we've had the biggest problems with kind of the records from the 90s and the 2000s um just finding the assets you know um the older analog stuff is actually a little bit easier cuz we you know analog tape holds up we can do the transfers um but yeah, it's it's starting from scratch, basically. So the way I do it and a lot of the people that I know do it is we try to re- we go first we go in and recreate the stereo mix as best we can. Um, just match that stereo mix. You know, we have a guide because you have the original mix. So you're constantly switching back and forth and listening. You know, you have to make sure all the, the arrangements right, that the tambourine goes out and comes in at the right places and that you have the right, you know, have the right vocal comp. Sometimes the vocals weren't, there isn't a track that says vocal comp. It was done with mutes on the console. So you have to make sure that you have all the right parts. So it's interesting because me and, you know, friends of mine who do this, we talk about this a lot about when you're going back to old records like that, 90% of the work of doing the Atmos mix is not Atmos mixing. It's recreate, it's, you know, finding the parts and getting them right and getting the arrangement right. And, and it's, it's all what, what we at Universal called pre-mixing, because sometimes we had other people do it. Finding all that stuff and, and getting it and getting a rough balance together. And then I would, so I would get pre-mixed stuff and somebody else would make sure we had the right vocal and the right guitar solo and stuff like that. Then they would send me a session 
And then I would rec- basically recreate the stereo mix is what I would do as best I could. And I would, I go so far as to, you know, I'll look up articles, especially if it's a big record. You know, if I can find articles about, you know, who mixed it, when did they mix it, where did they mix it, what did they use, you know, find old mixed magazine articles and said, oh, we used, you know, we just gotten the AMS delay. Great. Give me an AMS delay. You know, I now <laughs> I know what that is. So it's difficult. It's recreating the stereo mix and getting it as close as you possibly can. And then you can start spreading it out into the room. Um, and the idea is at some point I have to let the stereo mix go because at some point my Atmos mix becomes a new mix, basically. And I want it to be a new mix and I want it to be I don't want it to be exactly like the stereo mix, but I want it to have the feel of the stereo mix. I don't want somebody to listen to the Atmos mix to a song they've been listening to for 30 years and go, well, that doesn't sound like the same song. You know, so it, it, it's, a, it's a really fine line you play between, you know, how great, and most of it is the record. It is like anything in Atmos, the song will dictate how crazy you can be with it. Um, some records just they don't want to be crazy so we just kind of make them bigger and spread them out fill the space a little bit more you know a lot of the jazz stuff i do is just you know i call it taking away the wall instead of feeling like you're in the control room and the the group is out in the studio playing the record i want to feel like you're sitting in in there with them playing it um so it's it's keeping that feel best case scenario is when you have an artist or a producer from the original that has some input because mm-hmm. then they can they'll drive you to where they want to go. Like the ones I've, the ones that are farthest away from the stereo that I've done, I've usually had the artist with me and they're going, no, put that over there, put that over there, go put that over that, you know, they're the ones pushing harder for a more adventurous Atmos mix. So, and we've had stuff like, you know, old records where the artist was like, there's another guitar part. You know, this, this happened not in Atmos, but in 5.1. Um, I was Elliot Shiner's assistant when we redid Queens A Night at the Opera, you know, in 5.1, mm-hmm. which was 20 some years ago. But Brian May was with us the whole time. And there was one song where he was like, you know, there's a, there's a couple more guitar parts. You know, I think we can. And we were like, Brian, there's like, we went through this with a fine tooth comb. He says, no, no, they're not on the record. But I remember recording them. They're in there somewhere. <laughs> and we were able to go in and find it. He was right. There were two more guitar parts. He's like, yeah, they just didn't fit in the stereo. But can we put them over there? So, like, <laughs> if you listen to the 5.1 mix of A Night at the Opera, there's guitar parts in there that were not on the original stereo mix. We never would have done that ourselves. <laughs> but yeah. since the artist was there, you know, or you'll get artists that say, like, you know, that vocal's been out of tune for 40 years and it's driving me crazy. Can you please tune those last two notes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would never do that on my own, but when the artist is there, that's what you do, you know, so. That's very cool. Yeah, so if you have the artist around, it's fun. Yeah. I imagine that you're getting really, really good at, like, deconstructing a mix and, and recreating it, and, you know, it It seems like a fun project. It, it's, it can be very fun. Um, it can be very frustrating, too. Yeah. Um, but one thing, like, we're trying to educate some of the labels and the people that are asking us to do this job is that mixing catalog stuff is way harder than mixing new stuff. And, and again, it's, it's the, the part before the Atmos mix that's really difficult to do. You know, it's the forensic mixing, like mm-hmm. you said. It's, it's trying to, 
trying to recreate the stereo stuff, you know, or trying to recreate what they did in the stereo mix is is really difficult and really time consuming. And also, if you don't have the right equipment, like like you said, like you might be looking at articles on how they did it, or maybe you're even getting recall sheets from somewhere. But if they have equipment that you don't have, then you know you have to find your workaround for that. You know. Yeah, and it's not even if you have the recall sheets, it's you know, who knows what what it was actually doing? It was analog sure. gear. <laughs> you know, maybe that compressor was aligned wrong, and they were you know, if I put my compressor at those exact same settings, I get three dB of compression. But theirs, at those exact same sittings, they were getting 12 dB of compression, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So you just never know. Yeah, it's a lot of using your ears, you know. Um, a lot of experience, like, ooh, I remember that sound. I know what that is. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. hard. That's it's, very cool. It's, pre- it's pretty difficult. Well, man, you, I mean, it, it's it's awesome to hear from you and to to hear from the person that kind of started this this whole thing, you know, and, and get your experience of how it's evolved. And, um, you know, you've obviously mixed probably more of this stuff than anyone else, you know? And so, um, it, it's very cool to hear your perspective on this. I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. If people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that these days? Um, I have a website that I need to update, <laughs> stevegenowick.com. Um, you know, I, I've, at this point I've done be- mostly because of this Atmos stuff. I've done so many, podcasts and webinars and stuff like that you know a quick google i'm sure you'll find my face all over the place um absolutely and i, I saw that you do have a, a playlist of all of your atmos mixes as well too so people yeah, should definitely check that oh, out that's still public that's good okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah on apple music i know there's a shared playlist i think it's i don't remember what it's called off the top of my head but i think it's like steve genowick atmos mixes or something like yeah i think that. that's exactly what it was called but i'll, I'll try to find it and put it in the show and notes. actually it's fairly up to date because I update it for me so that I can find stuff really quickly. So. I noticed that when I looked at it, I think it was yesterday I looked at it, it was like updated 10 days ago or something like that. So it's, it's very current. Yeah, because I had got new speakers at my house. So I was looking for new stuff to play and I was like, oh, I went to Apple Music and I was like, oh, wait, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I haven't put up there yet. So um, <laughs> pretty much if you go to Apple Music and you go to the jazz playlist, I think like 90% of that entire catalog i've done so because I, I i do all the blue note and verve records so um but yeah it's you know you you can find me i'm available very cool <laughs> i have an instagram account and all that stuff but i don't update it all that much so um but yeah i'm, I'm around well well thank you for taking the time to do this i really appreciate it oh it's my pleasure so that was my conversation with steve jenowick and it was really cool to hear from someone who was really on the ground floor when it came to Atmos and someone who's been there all along with this and to hear his perspective on it, because I think it is very refreshing to hear him say that, you know, it's not for everyone and that not everyone should invest into this because, you know, we've definitely talked about Atmos a lot on this podcast and there's been a lot of different opinions on this as far as like, you know, should everyone be getting into this? Is this going to be something that lasts long term or is it just a temporary thing? But it's interesting to hear Steve's perspective on this because he has seen it from that ground floor and he's seen the types of people that are actually using this. And he's been in conversations with the manufacturers and stuff like that. So of all people to have on this podcast to talk about that, I feel like Steve is definitely an expert because he although he may not know the future and what these big companies have in mind, he's definitely had more conversations with the people behind this technology than any of us. So he's definitely someone whose opinion I think really matters in this whole thing. And it was also really interesting to hear the process that goes into 
remixing some of these classic records and making them into Atmos mixes and how he's got to reverse engineer these songs. I think that's a, a really fun project. And obviously it's very hard. And like you said, you know, when you're trying to deal with archival stuff that may or may not be properly archived, you know, presents its own challenge, but it's very interesting. And I'm sure we're going to see more and more of these classic albums being released. And I'm sure that Steve's going to be one of the guys behind a lot of those as well. So yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun to have him on the podcast. And I just thought the whole Atmos conversation was great. And I also thought that it was really great to get into a little bit of the work-life balance thing because, you know, so many of the people on this podcast talk about work, 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 and, you know, hustle, hustle, hustle. And I know that there are people listening to this that they're like, I don't have time for that. And can I actually make a living at this if I'm not going to hustle my ass off all the time? So I thought it was great to get into that kind of conversation and to hear how Steve's been able to handle it in his own life and have a supportive partner. And that's definitely something that I found in my own career. I do work a lot too, but, you know, you have to prioritize what's important. And you also need a partner who can work with you on that. And when you when you need to, you know, work on some music stuff instead of working with family or whatever, you know, you need someone who can help you out because there's going to be times when it's going to be the opposite as well. So, um, you know, definitely having a supportive partner goes a long way in that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm glad that we touched on that kind of stuff as well. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did as well. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you get all of the new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And I say this at the end of every episode, but if you're looking for help with your recording or your mixing skills and you're not quite sure what steps to be taking in order to get the quality of your track sounding pro and to feel confident throughout the whole process and to do it with speed and ease, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com because on the website, I've got so many great things there to help you out, whether it's some of the free downloads, if you're looking for some more in-depth courses. We've got that as well. Or if you're looking for personal one-on-one coaching, I also offer that as well. So if you're interested in learning more about the coaching, send me an email, info at masteryourmix.com. If you're looking for one-on-one support, or if you're just looking for more of a self-paced thing, then definitely make sure to visit masteryourmix.com and you'll find tons of great stuff there. And if you're new to me or to the website, One of the greatest starting points is to check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, I break down the process of mixing step by step so that you know exactly what to be listening for, what tools to be using, what steps you should be taking, what order you should be working in, all of that kind of stuff so that it really makes the process of mixing very easy and it eliminates a lot of the guesswork. So make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.